welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Nice to have you with us here in February. There's so much going on for us as a community in this season. We've got our AGM looming. We've got these events I just mentioned a few seconds ago. We have our dinners and our groups always meeting around the city. And we have lots of volunteer opportunities happening around as well. And we do hope that you are leaning into some of these as you can. But I, as we get going, I want to mention something else that... Depending on your background, you may be super familiar with it, or it might be completely out of sight and out of mind, and that is the church season of Epiphany. See, in the Christian practice of timekeeping, after Christmastide comes Epiphany, which is just this word in Latin that means manifestation or shining forth, and this is how this season is meant to work. After celebrating the breaking light of incarnation, where we turn inward on the child that's lying in a manger at Christmas, the church in Epiphany turns outward and considers how the smallest of lights always scatters darkness, and how the story of Jesus expands from a small barn in the Near East to spread out into the entire world. And so the church during Epiphany tells stories like the one about some kings who came from afar to worship Jesus as a toddler, and the story of where Jesus turned the heat up at a wedding reception. You guys know this, right? He turns water into wine. Or then there's the story of Jesus's baptism in the Jordan, where the secret of the universe was outed, that creator Redeemer and Comforter were all God's name. And what tales like this do, when we come back to them and we tell them again, they remind us of how Jesus' divinity showed up in and through his humanity. And reflecting on these stories also teaches us that the good story that we carry, it's actually already out there in the world. It's showing up in cultures and traditions and experiences where we don't expect to find it. And it's always inviting us further out into God's good world. And this is part of why epiphany practice is especially helpful for us as we watch for divine light in blossoming relationships, in intimate moments, in the unexpected arrival of something that we've been waiting for or something that we need, in spectacular sunrises that come to us at this time of year or the calming of our nerves in a quiet moment, a meaningful conversation that opens us up to honesty and awareness of who we are. In all these things, I trust that if you aren't already looking for the divine, just a quick reminder that as Gerard Manley Hopkins wrote, the whole world is charged with the grandeur of God. And that is something worth remembering during the February doldrums. Am I right? Yes. Now, doldrums are not. There's lots of reason to be excited because today we are back in Rome, which is awesome. And friends, we are almost there. Today we're going to look at chapter 15 of Paul's letter. Next week we're going into the last chapter. But before we jump ahead, just a quick moment to look back at what we covered last time we were together. See, because we've reached a point in this letter, this piece of literature that we've been working with, where the apostle is going through his final list of instructions before he signs off. And in chapter 14, he's particularly concerned about some disagreements that are happening in this community in Rome. And on one hand, it appears that there were some people there who felt that there were some boundaries that really needed to be followed and observed. Most likely, those were around whether certain meat was okay to eat. Was this meat kosher 
or had this meat been offered to idols? And whether you were a Jew or a Gentile who was particularly worried about spiritual contamination, there were reasons to be a bit nervous about concerning some foods. Now, in contrast to those people, it seemed that there were some others who, like Paul himself, they felt that because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, all the rules had changed. And as a result, to these people, it didn't really matter where the meat was coming from, where it had been, or who had touched it. Everything was fair game. And I'm not going to stick around to see if you've noticed the pun there, because Paul's point in the passage is to challenge all community members to realize that their friends and their siblings are also living with conviction in the world. And Paul encourages everybody. For those focused on boundaries, he says, honor others' commitment to freedom. And those who are free from food restrictions and the like, he says to them, recognize that the key responsibility for community, it lies with you guys. And Paul challenges them to not treat their freedom as sacrament, but rather care and mutual consideration for others. And of course, we acknowledged last week how this finds its way into our experience. We're to be clear. There are some opinions and positions that are more gracious than others. Some that are more in line with Christ's character than others. And those are what we want to affirm and put at the center for us as a community here at Commons. But we also acknowledged that to love at all is to be more committed to staying with and near each other than being right as much as is possible. And this is a commitment, quite frankly, that I think is intrinsic to the way that grace shows up everywhere in the human story and it keeps showing up in my story which is something I don't ever want to forget as you and I and those who call Commons home, we try to make room and we try to make welcome and we try to do justice in the world together in spite of all the differences that might be represented in a room like this. Now, with this said, we press on into the penultimate chapter of this letter and as we do, join me in a quiet moment of reflection and prayer. Loving God, we pray simply that you would hold us now in whatever state we're in, where we feel weak, we ask that you would be our comfort. Where we are anxious, hear our cry for peace. And where we might be searching, we ask that you would light the way for us through ancient texts today, and into all the places where we feel we have need. We are present to these things now, and we're grateful for a space like this in which we can be known for a moment to pause, a moment to see one another, and to move forward having taken time for grace. Be with us now as we learn together and as we work together in the days to come. We ask this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so let's get into it. We have lots of ground to cover today. I'm actually going to show you a little bit more text than usual, but we'll get to that. Because first, I want to tell you a bit of a quick story. And for this, we're going to go back a few years to when my family and I, we were living in Ontario. And it was a completely normal day. I was doing something completely normal at the time. I was getting groceries. We were there as a family. We were getting a few things. And as we were there, we came to the checkouts, and it was a little busy. 
there were lineups at multiple tills, okay? And as per usual, Darlene, my wife, she told me to stay in one line while she went and stood in another trying to see which one is faster because I'm a stay-in-the-lane-you-choose kind of guy and Darlene likes to play the high-stakes game of lane roulette. Anyway, so we're moving through our lines and I'm getting close. I am next in line and then something normal happens. The powers at B decide we need another checkout open right? It's busy. And so they come and they open the one that's right next to me. And the associate that comes, they come up and they say something like, you guys know what they say? They say, I'll help the next person right here. I'm like, great. So I start to move over there because I'm the next person. And I might have even had a spotlight on me. The associate was looking at me after all when they said this. I think it was pretty clear. Anyway, I had to pause for a second. I think I had one or two kids with me at the time, so I'm collecting them. And in that split second, an older woman comes from the far reaches of the back of the line, and she just starts unloading her stuff as I pull in behind her. There should be gasps at this point. And guys, I was not. I was not my best self. I am not proud of my response because she, what she did is not what you're supposed to do, right? So Dar, Dar comes over from a few lanes and she could see that I was probably a little crazed and I'm just eyeballing this woman that's old enough to be my mom. I'm just looking at her, hoping she's going to turn around and look at me, but she's ignoring me. So I start explaining to Dar what happened loud enough so she can hear me. And in that moment, while I'm telling the story, I actually called her a name. Yeah, sigh. And I don't remember what I called her because I think my shame has probably blocked that part out. And I tell you that story for a couple reasons. First, to ensure that nobody has too high a view of me. <laughs> Check, right? And second, because it speaks to how we walk around with a sense of what we ought to do. And more importantly, what others ought to do which is where we tie in in Romans 15 and this brief continuation of themes from the previous chapter. And this is where the text starts for us. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. And here, Paul is or he's connecting to a conversation about those he calls weak in the previous chapter, those in the community who are still hung up on food regulations. And his encouragement at the beginning of chapter 15 here is that those who are secure, those who are sure of mercy's grip, those who aren't buying this artificial connection between faith and rules, he's telling those people to be careful, to not live with such freedom that they disturb the people who might be sensitive in the community and to not live for their own preferences. And to say this, Paul is pulling out this ought to language, this language of obligation, where effectively he's saying, look, if you aren't overly hung up on the rules, use that strength to not do what you want. And what's important to note is how Paul's using language that was connected to the ethic of reciprocity that was dominant in the Roman world. The famous Roman lawyer and philosopher Cicero, if you studied Latin in college, you know him, he described a central aspect of this ethic when he wrote a few decades before Paul, for no duty is more imperative than that of proving one's gratitude. 
And this was a principle that governed almost all social interactions in the empire. Slaves and working free individuals were to live dutiful lives in response to the graciousness of their wonderful owners and householders. And then nobles and power brokers were to offer support and subservience to the emperor in gratitude for his gifts of land and position. And of course, we know that slave owners and emperors were not deserving of this gratitude in most cases. The system of obligation was built to, to profit those who had power and to actually limit the agency of the weak, which is what makes Paul's ought-to language so profound. Because we have to remember that he has spilled a lot of ink already on parchment, trying to untie the knots of power that are present in this community. You have Jews in the community claiming precedent. You have Gentiles claiming privilege. The wealthy and situated in both of these camps are making space for no one and excluding those of lower status. And this is why Paul says, those of you who are in a better position, those of you who are mature, those of you who grasp the significance of Jesus, you're strong in faith, you, you ought to do everything you can to please your neighbors. And when he says this, he's not just pushing the sensibilities of some decent people in this community. He is proposing a social obligation at complete odds with that of the surrounding culture, where what ought to be done is rooted in grace, not in status, which is a curious idea for us to maybe work with and massage a little bit. Because maybe you work for somebody or you live with somebody and you are more emotionally mature than they are. Or maybe you have somebody in your peer group who has super clear opinions about some area of life that you actually have more experience in or you work in this area or you do advocacy in it and they just keep dominating conversations. Or in an example a little closer to Paul's context here, maybe you know somebody who claims Christian identity in a way that seems limited and misguided to you. I think we probably all run into scenarios like this from time to time where it can be super helpful to carry Paul's words here with us. To remember that whatever strength or advantage we have doesn't give us a right to seek our advantage in malicious or exclusive ways. And to remember that grace, this grace we carry, it changes our obligation from following social cues and expectations and from being justified with our opinions and our actions. It changes it to pleasing our neighbors for their good, to build them up. Which Paul claims, his big argument then, this is what God has done in Christ for everybody. And as a community of people committed to putting Jesus at the center, this offers us, these simple words today, they offer us unlimited opportunities to go out and do what we ought to do, even when we're buying groceries, it turns out. No, <laughs> we got to keep going because that's only two verses into this chapter. But as we do, one of the things that we have to know is how Paul is making some really big jumps as he talks here. See, we hear Paul tell the Romans to build each other up across all differences. And to justify this, he says, you know what, Jesus didn't please himself, so don't please yourself. And then he quotes Psalm 69 verse 9 as a kind of allusion to what Jesus declared with his sacrificial life and death. Where Jesus is saying, said, is saying the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Jesus is taking the heat here. Now what's interesting 
is when you go back and you look at Psalm 69, you see that Paul has just lifted a chunk of a verse out of Psalm 69 with the surrounding passage reading this way. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. There's the last line that Paul's lifted. And we can see in this psalm that there's a devout ancient poet and worshiper who's talking about their love for God and their respect for the temple and how these things have led them to be ridiculed and marginalized in their own family, where the insults meant for God, they've been receiving those. They've fallen the poet now, which is only important because of what scholars note Paul's done in Romans 15, where Paul applies these words to Jesus, how Jesus accepted his suffering. You know what the catch is here? Is how Paul takes the second pronoun, you. This is the Greek translation. He, it's the Greek pronoun that refers to God in the psalm. You can see it there on the top. And follow this here. He applies it to the Christians in Rome in the letter he's writing, where Jesus' self-sacrifice for those in Rome is supposed to be their model for pleasing each other. In effect, Paul's taken a passage in the psalms that's talking about God, and he applies it to the people he's writing to, which might seem insignificant and a little bit too grammary, except for what Paul says next. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And here, Paul's implying, look, the scriptures written in the past, they're meaningful for you showing you what endurance looks like. They give your heart some comfort in a difficult moment. And those texts aren't merely documents from the past, he's saying. And as for just how he thought the scriptures were supposed to help his particular audience, we're going to come to that in a second. But what's more pressing for me is how Paul has gotten so creative with the text that he's reading here and with the story he's telling And this gets me thinking about how we talk about doing this same thing too. See, because every week we conclude our liturgy here at Commons with a benediction that encourages everybody to love God, to love people, and to tell the story. And over the past few years, I've had more than a few people come up to me and ask me, what does this last statement mean? What does tell the story mean? What are you getting at with this invitation? How am I supposed to do that? And all pressure to go out and be obnoxious for Jesus' side, which is seriously not what tell the story means. I think there's a hint of how to move forward with this statement we use in what Paul's doing here in Romans 15. Because he has taken a story that he knows really well, a story that matters to him, a story with a historical context and a tradition and interpretive contours, a story that encourages him to keep going, encourages him to be hopeful in the face of adversity, and he is being creative with it. Some might even say he's being too creative because he's taking a pronoun that talks about God and he applies that to people which in some small measure is what you and I do when we take these stories that we teach through and think about. When you take them and you reevaluate beliefs and convictions that you aren't sure work for you anymore. When you persist in faith even through deconstruction and you let others in on this project that you're on, 
When you form new habits and healthy rhythms based on ancient wisdom and you share these rhythms with other people, when you use these stories that we talk about in community as a way to animate your advocacy in the world, where you take the hope that comes to you in story and you take it and you learn with it, and then you take it and share with others as you make neighborly connections and you willfully forgive a friend or somebody who's offended you and you attempt to address issues of local and global justice. All of these, these steps you take, they tell the story in profound ways with artfulness that is not unlike Paul playing with the ancient pronouns to make his point, where your faithful creativity becomes holy embodied practice and with endurance and encouragement, you spark hope in our world. And I think that that's what Paul was after in it all. And for the record, Paul's point, that the scriptures have been given to us all to inspire hope. He's only saying this because he is coming back around to a summary of sorts as he gets ready to close this letter. He tells the Romans, look, if scripture teaches us these things, please accept one another then as Jesus accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth. So that the promises made way back when to the patriarchs, that these things might be confirmed and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Because for Paul, and this probably sounds familiar if you've been with us for a while, Jesus' appearance and Jesus' work have completely reorganized the way the world looks. Yes, the Jews have carried the story of God in their text and in their culture. But Paul repeats an argument that he has been working on through this whole letter, that since the beginning, the story has been about the Gentiles being brought into the divine family too. And in these following verses in chapter 15, Paul works through a list of references from the Hebrew scriptures to prove this point he's making. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles from 2 Samuel and from Psalm 18. Then he says, rejoice you Gentiles with God's people from Deuteronomy. And then he quotes from Isaiah who said, the root of Jesse will spring up those or one will arise to rule over the nations. And in that person, the Gentiles will have hope. And in this list Paul makes, Paul again is doing some creative work with these ancient texts. He's showing how this redemptive arc that God has been working on has always mapped space for all people. And now it includes the people that he's writing to. These tiny little gatherings in Rome, these collections of diverse individuals who are often fighting with each other, which is why for all the theology that Paul builds earlier in Romans, four years worth of theology by our experience. For all that theology, it's so important to note how here in chapter 15, Paul starts to sign off this letter by saying, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in God so that you may be filled with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when Paul says you right there, he's not referring to just one individual reader. The pronoun there is plural. He's talking to a community like ours. Because Paul, or for Paul, salvation might belong to each person, 
But Paul saw it being worked out in community and he saw it playing out in the world day by day. And this letter makes this clear time and time again. And we see this so clearly as this chapter comes to an end. Here, Paul says that he wants to come to Rome. He starts talking about his itinerary, which can feel like a little bit out of left field. He says it this way. He says, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyria, I can't even say that word. We'll just skip it. I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. But now that there's no place for me to work in these regions, and since I've been longing to come and see you guys for so long, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. And as we read this, we can see how for Paul, his life and his purpose and the biggest of his ideas that he's already shared with us, these are playing out in the geography of the world. Starting in Jerusalem, working in a circle around to modern-day Croatia, roughly, he, while he's writing this letter, he's actually returning to Jerusalem with support for the Christians there. Paul discusses his intention right now to get to Spain via Rome while he hooks up with this community for a few moments. But however, tradition tells us that most likely Paul doesn't get to Spain. His journey is going to bring him back to Rome as a prisoner and he will not get any further. The book of Acts actually ends with Paul under house arrest and it is widely believed that he died in the custody of the empire. And biographical notes like this can seem lost, especially when we tend to think that Romans is just about theology. I mean, this letter is so full of big ideas that we sometimes lose sight of these mentions of how big Paul's dreams were. How long miles of travel and adversity that he had already faced, how these things had not dulled his sense of drive and his sense of compulsion to take the story of Jesus to where it had never been heard. And for all these intentions, Paul didn't make it. Part of what's important in reading his itinerary, part of what it reminds us of is how life is actually measured. Because I imagine that at some point, you have had a goal that you didn't reach. There's probably some objective that you set, something that you pursued that just never came back around for you. Maybe it's just some sense that you carry that you aren't where you would have been or should have been had different things happened. Sometimes our best intentions, intentions that we feel are deeply intrinsic to who we are, sometimes these things do not bring us to the destinations that we set out to find. And I think sometimes it's hard for us to read our lives like we do Paul's. Because nobody thinks that because Paul didn't get back to Spain, that somehow his profound theology and his friendships and his investments in communities were worthless. But we do discount our own lives over unfulfilled dreams. And we question our worth over unmet expectations. I know we do. Which is maybe one of the unexpected benefits of reaching these last chapters in Romans for you. Where you start to see clearly how while Paul did not check all the boxes that he wanted to, he certainly did his best. 
and he walked with integrity and he did what he ought to do by serving others. And he told the story of Jesus with creativity. And maybe today, this reminds you that the measure of your life isn't always going to be what you accomplish or where you get to.